0: Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts, people that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as a comedian, a writer, a performer, and a lover of crocheted coat hangers. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words, in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Corinne Grant. Hi. Hello. Hello. Corinne, in social settings, how do you introduce yourself?
1: Um, as a comedian. Yeah, as a comedian. I leave the lover of crochet coat hanger bits off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you get the invariable follow-up of, okay, then tell us a joke? No, not
1: so much anymore. Well, I'm kind of, I'm lucky really that most people sort of know vaguely who I am anyway, so I don't often mm. have to. Go through all of that stuff, which is good because I don't do joke jokes. You know what I mean. Mm. So no, I can't tell you a joke. I don't remember jokes.
0: Do you have uh, someone that you look to uh, that you that you enjoy in comedy that does do joke jokes?
1: Oh, I don't really think there's many people around anymore who do joke jokes. Not really. No.
0: Are you saying that the, the art of the the one liner or the joke is lost?
1: No, no, I'm not saying it's lost. It's just not really – well, I guess it's not a thing in – well, look, it probably is in pubs and clubs comedy and in older comedy a little bit as well, mm-hmm. Um, but probably not so much on the circuit or in festivals, that kind of thing, not so much. It's more storytelling-oriented now.
0: The, the, there's been this move to a more story-oriented story, story oriented festival show, particularly in comedy shows, festivals and stuff. Does that mean that we're getting sort of a little bit too much rubber stampy or a little bit too much cookie cutter kind of things?
1: Oh, it can get a little bit like that. Yeah, there's um I noticed that a few years ago in the comedy festival, unless you were doing a show that was um serious and had some depressing element in it, <laughs> it wasn't considered to be a worthy show, which I think misses the point of comedy surely. No awards for you in that situation yet. are the point of comedy. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. So people are still funny, but it's more your observational humor and um, building things up. It's not. It's not one liners so much. It's the the other skills where you'll have a joke with um uh, a callback at the end of it and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Tom Gleason's really good at that stuff. I would say Tom Gleason has one of the highest um, laugh rates in his shows when he does them. His stories are shorter. There's a lot of punchiness in them, mm-hmm. and and he's bloody funny. But they're not, they're still not yes. one liners, you know? They're not joke jokes in that respect. They're not how many chickens crossed the road. See, I can't even do that one properly. It's why <laughs> did the chicken cross the road? I'm totally, I'm totally shit at this. Let's just take comedian off my Twitter profile.
0: <laughs> how many chickens did cross the road?
1: Oh, I don't, like all of them, all of the chickens.
0: <laughs> as many as were legally allowed to under the guise of their supervision.
1: Yeah, that's right. All of the chickens in the entire world.
0: Who do you count as uh, comedy inspiration?
1: Oh, well, if you want to go right back old school, Lucille Ball. Excellent. Um, yes, uh, as I've always liked slapstick and physical humor as well, and she was she was the one who uh, you know taught chicks how to do it. Um, it was mm. really, you know, you saw a woman doing it and a woman who wasn't afraid to, you didn't have to be glamorous because there is women are sort of or young girls are taught, you know, to be glamorous and if you're going to be on television especially or something like that, then you want to be pretty all of the time. So watching Lucille Ball, Carrie mm. anne Kennelly when I was a kid, Carrie anne Kennelly wasn't afraid to make a dick of herself and I found that really endearing. Yeah. I loved that.
0: This is the Carrie anne Kennelly of the The midday show era? Of
1: the midday show, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, around that time she'd end up getting goop in her hair and stuff and wear silly outfits and do all of those things that you very rarely saw women (laughs) doing on television.
0: And dance the Macarena with the Treasurer.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that? No one ever says that she looked like a dick doing that. Everyone says Peter <laughs> Costello looked like a dick.
0: Look, we know that Kerry Ann Kennelly can cut a rug. Yes. We didn't before that know if Peter Costello could, and we learned very quickly he needs to stick to figures. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What is it that you do really well?
1: Oh, gee. What do I do really well? Procrastinate. (laughs) (laughs) Does does that count as a thing? Last weekend when I was meant to be studying, I ended up making a a homemade face scrub. I've never made my own body products before in my life. What possessed me to do that?
0: How did it turn out?
1: It's fine. It's in the shower. It works really well. It's all good. It's on my face. (laughs) It, it's exfoliating. It's doing the things it's meant to do. And, you know, a bit of sugar, honey and coconut oil. Disturbingly had all of those things around my house. Who normally has coconut oil? Apparently hippies like me.
0: Oh, paleo people.
1: Oh, I forgot about the paleo thing. Oh, yeah, I'm not one of those.
0: Why do you have coconut oil in the house?
1: <laughs> because I go through vague little hippie phases every now and again. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's really good because it's got a, a higher heat temperature than normal olive oil, so... Um, mm. Olive oil can burn uh, at a certain temperature, whereas coconut oil doesn't. So it's it's better for you cooking wise, um, just less carcinogenic than other
0: oils. In, do you follow a specific diet regime?
1: Uh, whatever is in front of me, I eat. Excellent. That is my idea of a diet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of this paleo uh, situation? Because it's not it's more than a craze, but it's also not a There's lots of people in white coats that say it's not a thing.
1: No, it's totally not a thing. The whole idea that this is what cave people ate and therefore we should eat it, well, that's forgetting. The cave people probably only ate it because that was all that was there. It doesn't mean it was better. And also, we don't know what effect it had on them in the long run because cave people weren't living to 85, 90 years of age.
0: That's right. The animals took care of that.
1: It is full of bullshit, yeah. The animals (laughs) took care of that. All kinds of weird diseases took care of that. Probably, you know, eating the animal with, um, you know, you know what they probably did? They probably did the the classic thing of mixing up their animals on their chopping boards and getting some kind of hideous bacterial disease.
0: (laughs) Salmonella wiped out uh, all of the homo sapien, just that, that era they died. Totally.
1: And the dinosaurs.
0: Are you disagreeing with Pete Evans when he says that food is medicine?
1: Uh, Yeah, I'm really disagreeing with Pete Evans when he says food (laughs) is medicine. Didn't Pete Evans disagree with himself when he said that?
0: He did. No, he did disagree with himself. No, I completely (laughs) endorse what you're saying there. What, What is food then?
1: Well, food's what keeps you going, and there's certain foods, I'm sure, that are better for you. You know what? I don't think there's foods that are better for you. There's food you're supposed to eat so that you live properly, and then there's the food that's going to shorten all of that and mess you up. And that's the stuff I like. It's all the deep fried stuff, really not good for you. But I don't think fruit (laughs) and vegetables and brown rice is medicine. I just think that those are the things you're supposed to eat. Does that make sense? That's your base level of health. And then once you start putting your sugars and your fats and your deep fried things on top of that, you're taking away from your, your baseline of health. But I do not think that food is medicine. It's just the thing that you're meant to eat to keep yourself alive. What
0: are you studying? Law. What?
1: Oh yeah, I am four months off finishing my law degree.
0: A, a, a second question, if I may. What the hell? <laughs>
1: this is my, my life is spent like mostly sitting on my couch studying. Um, I'm either studying or doing my comedy work, I'm like that is my entire life. Um, yeah, so Gosh. four months, and I finish my law degree, and then I will get a job in a law firm and start working towards being
0: admitted is this the end result of a long-term life goal or something that you went, Hey, I I think that comedy is fun, but I want to do something more.
1: Yeah, that was, that was it really. I've been doing comedy for about 20 years and I just got to a point where I sort of felt that I had done all of the things that I wanted to do with comedy and it was starting to get a bit repetitive for me and, Uh, I'm just not, Mm -hmm. I've never been the kind of person who likes to see, I think vaguely there's two, really vaguely two kinds of people in the world, people who like to know what they're doing every day for the rest of their lives. That gives them great comfort. I go to work at nine in this particular job. I come home at five. I know what I'm doing. That makes me feel like the world is a solid place. And then there's other people like me who freak out at the idea of it being the same every day for the rest of my life. And comedy was starting to get a bit like that to me. I couldn't see how it was going to be mm-hmm. any different. I was, you know, I was just going to keep doing corporate work. There would be the occasional television show that would come up. I'd see the same people, we'd do the same kinds of things. The comedy festival every year becomes like Groundhog Day. It's very, very similar. And I thought, oh, I know, I need to do something different mm. now. I need to. And also, I wanted to intellectually challenge myself again. And law certainly does that.
0: Y- yes. Wow. I can just imagine you closing arguments. Uh, and in closing, Your Honour, how many chickens did cross the road? All of the chickens. All of the chickens. I rest my case.
1: <laughs> I know what I have to learn to do as a lawyer is not swear as much.
0: <laughs> that doesn't go. Don't go. Doesn't go down well in in moot. No, no. And I haven't done any mooting actually. I know I
1: did one moot, and I was really sarcastic. And I thought, actually, you know what. Don't don't join the mooting team because I see the opposition like I do hecklers and then I just tear them apart. And I know technically that's probably what I would do if I became a barrister and stood up in court, but not with my mates at law school. That just makes me an asshole.
0: <laughs> it's a fine line. It
1: is a fine line.
0: Do you have plans? Do you want to become a barrister, QC, whatever, or is it just, oh, this, is, this is a good challenge for me now and we'll see what happens?
1: So, um, no, like my plans, were the, the, the other reason I took it up was because the, when I haven't been performing, the other thing that I've always had a great passion for is human rights and social justice mm-hmm. and I did a lot of that as a performer. I would volunteer my time to, to rallies and to organisations and I'd MC fundraisers and all of that kind of thing. But it got to a point where I just wanted to do more than that. I wanted to be more practically involved So I can do that with a law degree. So I don't know whether I can or I should name the law firm, but I've got a traineeship at a law firm next year and I'll be starting there. And they do a lot of um, human rights law and plaintiff law and uh, looking after what I I like to call a battler law, looking after people who are making their way through and protecting them from both government and large corporations.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Does that... Desire to be part of, of the change, part of that advocacy process. Uh, does that come from uh, you know little Korean aspirational Korean at, at in school? You know, I, I want to be part of a you know changing the world.
1: I think in some respects it comes from my parents as well, who are very are both very deeply. They both have a very deep grounding in the idea of fairness that you Mm -hmm. judge people on their actions, not on what they look like or where they come from or anything like that, but whether people are decent and whether they're good to each other. So I think it was instilled in me from a very young age that that's how we should all treat each other. And so as you get older and you start seeing how the world works and you start seeing how government works, you think, I'm not seeing that reflected around me. I'm seeing some pretty awful people doing some genuinely horrible things.
0: What inequity, given the opportunity right now, what inequity would you like to see changed?
1: I think that um, the biggest inequity is a lack of generosity by Australian people. So I know that's really broad, mm. but under that umbrella, I would put the way that we treat people uh, on welfare and people who can't find a job. We tend to be rather unfeeling towards those people without thinking through why they're in that position. And secondly, to asylum seekers and refugees who, you know, by sheer dumb luck, it's them and not us who are in that position. We magically were born in this country. They unfortunately were born in a country where, you know, shit's got terribly out of control. Uh, but we're all the same people, and we forget that. I think somehow we've decided that we are better people than other people, and mm. that we don't uh, we can't afford to share our stuff. We've got heaps of stuff in Australia. We've really got heaps of stuff. We can share it.
0: Yes, heaps of stuff. How do you think Australia would cope? It's hypothetical, I guess. But it, let's say Australia wasn't you know water locked, but surrounded by other countries. Where crossing the border was climb a fence, dig a hole, run past somebody. How would we cope with the the current Syrian crisis?
1: I think we would have a little bit more perspective on it. Like, we are completely freaked out by the fact that we get a couple of thousand refugees a year and, you know, decide that means our borders are under invasion. Um, I Mm. think if we were in the middle of Europe somewhere where we shared borders with other countries, we would be looking at a country like Australia and laughing at them and going, are you serious? Like you're (laughs) you're worried about 2,000 people? We just had 20,000 come in the last two months. Yeah. How we would react as a country, whether we would still be as lacking in generosity, I don't know. I think it would depend on who was leading us. I think that makes a big difference. The tone of the country can sometimes be set by its leader. Well, the tone of the country is set by its leaders and we have leaders at the moment who are incredibly ungenerous people and uh, try to keep themselves in power by instilling fear and uh, a sense of selfishness in Australians.
0: The most recent near tragedy to us was, look, I'm going to say probably the, the tsunami, wouldn't it have been, or was the Bali bombings yep. before since then?
1: Uh, Oh, gee, I can't remember. I'm
0: horrible with history things. I'm
1: really bad with timelines.
0: Well, let's pick one of them, say. When the Aussie response to both of those um, horrific things happening was that we want to raise money, we want to help, we want to be a part of the solution. And that wasn't just, there was an element of government doing right, but a groundswell of people just saying we want to do something. How has that changed? Because we've now got to the point where I get the feeling, this is just me, I get the feeling that if something like that went wrong, we might not respond in the same open and generous fashion, do you think? I think we would
1: because the big difference between the tsunami and the Bali bombings and all of those other disasters and refugees coming here is that refugees come here. I think if after the tsunami all of those people said, can we come live in Australia, we would have gone, oh, whoa, dude, Mm. we're willing to give you money. But uh, we didn't say you could come here. That's the difference, I think. <clears throat> we are generous up to a point. <laughs> you know, you'll go buy the cake from the cake store. But as soon as the CWA said, "Could you bake some stuff for us?" We go, "Oh no, come on, that's too much effort. I'm not going to do that." <laughs>
0: Look, more than elements of truth, there was a very funny uh, Facebook post, and whether it was true or not is a whole other thing, that went around where some school, uh, like parents and citizens, parents and friends committee, sent out a, a thing saying, we've got a fundraising thing coming up, you can come along and help out and do something, or, and it was like a bunch of check boxes. here's $10 uh, because I feel guilty because you sent me this and I can't do anything but take it anyway, and then a whole other list of increasing amounts that basically say, like, here's 50 bucks, um, thanks, don't ever send me one of these again, um, where the give the cash and it goes away is, is a really easy solution versus us actually doing something.
1: Yeah. And that, yes, yeah, goodness knows whether that was a hoax or not. But if not, sounds like a really good fundraising idea.
0: <laughs> what was school like for you, Corinne? Um.
1: Yeah, well, I went to school in a really little town. I went. Uh, I was in a town that there were about 1,500 people when I was there. So there was 300 nice. people in my school, so about 30 in my year level, whether that was mm. primary or high school. So we were a pretty close-knit bunch of kids. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, really looking back on it, it was quite idyllic because it was in the country and – you know, lots of fresh air, lots of running around in primary school, lots of you know climbing trees and rolling down hills. It was before everything was covered in that kind of weird rubberized stuff. You could fall <laughs> off things. You know, I went to, I was in primary school in my in the seventies, so you you fell off stuff all the time. Yep. We were allowed to. We were allowed to get burnt. We didn't have to wear yep. hats at all. <laughs>
0: mm, yep. I'm
1: probably a walking melanoma. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Was it somewhere that you found uh, solace in books or solace in friends?
1: Oh, definitely in books, but I had two friends, Lara and Virginia, who were equally mad for reading books as well. So we would, I guess without knowing what it was called, we would hold our own little book clubs. Yep. So yeah, are pretty nerdy kids, but nerdy, but um, used our imaginations a lot as well. We, we, lived in each other's heads we would go up there was a pine forest uh it's sadly been cut down now because it was a great place when you were a kid because it's full of toadstools and stuff and we would run into this pine forest and the fairies would talk to us we were convinced and we all heard the fairies saying the same things and we'd run around and have adventures like we were the famous five or in an Eden Blyton book it was pretty idyllic wow
0: That sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, it was really cool. Like you couldn't ask for a better childhood in that regard. You just get on your bike in the morning and go and not come back until it was dark.
0: Man, given that that, wow. What what was something that you look back to and go, wow, that really made me grow up?
1: Oh, gee. I wonder. Look, also, coming from a small country town, where everybody knows everybody and also your family ends up being quite large because my mother, my father came from New Zealand, but my mother's, my mother was like third generation from that town. So you related mm. to a lot of the people there. I guess I saw or I understood death from a very early age. So I would be hanging around with, you know, you'd be going to funerals and, and seeing grief and those kinds of things from a Mm -hmm. very young age. So I don't know whether that made me grow up, grow up, but I think it taught me a sense of responsibility and empathy for other people and that there are certain ways to behave around other people that you have to show sensitivity. Even when you're a little kid and you're not 100% sure what's going on, you know that something serious is happening and that will require you to, to step up to the plate a
0: little bit. Have you ever had to, to make a stand on a on an issue?
1: Uh, in terms of like my own personal morals or ethics or something like that? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean on the asylum seeker issue, yes, a number of times and I have aligned myself very publicly with that uh, cause, which I know that I have lost some work because of that and I don't care. Mm-hmm. It's more important to me that I stand up for my principles and publicly stand up for them as well because I think to not say things publicly is, for me, it would be cowardly or I would feel like a hypocrite. I'm not judging what other people do, but for me I would feel like a hypocrite or a coward if I didn't stand up and say, no, I won't do that. That's not something I believe I want to be associated with because those people or that organisation um, does not align itself with my values. So I've done that a few times in my career.
0: As a, as a broader society, do you think that we shy away from making those stands uh, and it, instead it sort of pours out as an argument on social media?
1: Like, yeah, I, I don't know. I think in Australia maybe making those stands is something that's a little foreign to us. I think it's um, – you see Americans do it more often, I think. Americans tend to have firm views mm-hmm. on things and align themselves with particular causes more than what America Australia also is. has, Donald Trump though. <laughs> yeah, look, and that's that's really unfortunate on so many yeah. levels, isn't it? And not just yes. the hair; so many levels of unfortunate oh, there.
0: Yes, as many as he has in that tower.
1: Oh my God! If he becomes president of the United States, like we are all dead. Like that's the end.
0: Yep, he's going to build a wall around America.
1: Yeah, he will. You know what? It'll become a nuclear war based on him and that bloody Kim Jong, which is the. What is it? It's not Kim Jong-un. Is it Kim Jong-un now? I think so. They'll have some kind of crazy hair off that will result in a nuclear war. <laughs> that is, you heard it here first. Obviously, you know, global politics is my strong point. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what I'm predicting will happen.
0: Oh, it'll be crazy. So, yeah, you were saying that America has, they make a stand more than we do. From a, it, it, It's almost cultural.
1: Yeah, and it it is more cultural, I think, you know, it extends from, you know, their freedom of expression, which is a constitutional right that they take very seriously, that could be the basis of it. But for whatever reason, they they stand up for what they believe in quite vocally a lot more than what we do and a lot more than the English do as well. I think we sort of come from that English tradition where you mm-hmm. sort of keep yourself to yourself a little bit. And maybe it comes out on social media because you can be a little bit anonymous there, but at the same time, like most people are not on social media most of the time, you know, and the people who are engaged in that kind of stuff is not mm. the majority of Australians.
0: You have a very busy study load, Karina. How do you manage that?
1: Yeah, well, by not getting on Twitter and going down the rabbit <laughs> hole of opening up one <laughs> thing after another and then go, there's an hour of my life, I'll never get back now. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I don't do that, and I'm not on Facebook at all, so I'm not. Uh, I don't get distracted mm. by that. But look, I'm I'm pretty disciplined, so I get up early, and I can I can study and concentrate for long hours. So I just go all day.
0: How do you unwind then? Uh,
1: I normally watch an episode or so of something on Netflix or something like that. So I'm watching Orange Is the New Black at the moment. Excellent. Yeah, it's not bad, although the lead character, oh, God, she's irritating.
0: Annoying. Yeah. I hear that a lot. Oh,
1: I can't bear her. Oh, I can't bear her. But I, I think I, I I, also understand that I think the amount I dislike her makes me like everybody else even more.
0: <laughs> so How deep are you in?
1: I've just got to the episodes where Ruby Rose has turned up.
0: Okay, so season three.
1: Season three, about halfway through, I think, something like that.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, you, you've got an amazing journey still to come. That's going to be awesome. Do you have uh, a sporting team that you follow, watch, slash, obsess over?
1: Oh, well, look, I barrack for Essendon, but there are many reasons to not obsess over Essendon <laughs> at the moment, because mostly obsessing over Essendon will lead you into quite a depressive spiral. So I... I am in. Yes. I keep abreast of the Essendon issues, but I try not to dwell on them too much. We did. We won a game yesterday. We won a game. It's very Hooray. exciting. Well done, us.
0: <laughs> it's, is that. Do you follow Essendon by choice or by designation?
1: By choice, but yeah, my dad uh, followed Essendon, follows Essendon. Um, When he moved to Australia, his name is Don, and Essendon sometimes goes by the nickname The Dons. Not so much anymore, but they used to. And Dad went, oh, well, that'll do. The Dons. The Dons. So, yeah, my dad was going for Essendon, so I did. And then my (laughs) sister did the polar opposite thing of that where, well, if my sister's going to go for Essendon, I'm going to go for Hawthorne because they're the ultimate rival to Essendon. Mm. And her cousin, our cousin, had taught her or convinced her to go for Hawthorne because Dermot Brereton was really hot. It was the 80s. We had a very different idea of what was hot back then. Very different idea.
0: True, ladies did think that Dipper was hot.
1: <laughs> oh, really? Oh, jeez. So I'm told. Wow. Well, people did think Warwick Kappa was hot as well. We just, yeah, we didn't think it through that well back then.
0: Uh, look, I'm going to suggest very gently, I don't think we still think it through very well.
1: <laughs> That's true. That's true.
0: What do you find attractive?
1: A sense of humor and confidence, not arrogance, but just confidence and intelligence, but again, not arrogance. That arrogance, oh, biggest turn off in the world, but somebody who's confident and when I say intelligent, I don't necessarily mean book smarts. I mean inquisitive about the world and can synthesize information and figure their way through things. I, I find that really engaging.
0: And what – What do you want to be challenged by in that regard?
1: Um, I'm always willing to have my own assumptions questioned. I think sometimes, well, especially with assumptions, we can all have them and not realize their assumptions as well until somebody says, exactly what are you basing that on? And you go, oh, hang on a second. If I can't answer that question, I better go back and check whether that really is what I believe or or whether I should question that a little bit more. Mm. I like that. I don't particularly like arguments. Like if if I've got a firm view and the other person has the polar opposite firm view, there's really no point in engaging because no one's going to change. But in those more grey areas, that's when discussions can get
0: interesting. What are you going to achieve in the next 12 months?
1: What am I going to achieve in the next 12 months? I will have finished my law degree and graduated from that. Hopefully I will have... um, fixed my leaking roof in my house which I keep looking <laughs> at and going oh that's too hard it'll it'll, mm. it'll fix itself i'm pretty sure roofs fix themselves yeah um but yeah what i will achieve is graduating from my law degree and uh getting a job in a law firm but i will still be doing comedy as well on the side because um i've got a mortgage so i'll be doing both at once
0: <laughs> is comedy something that you can't shake out of your system that you find is a part of your makeup.
1: Um, in terms of doing it for a job, it will eventually disappear, I think, but not anytime soon. Um, because I still you, you don't get paid much when you start off in law. Eventually, you get paid all right. Although I'm going to be doing dirty lefty law, so I'm mm. not. I'm never going to own a yacht or anything like that. Um, so I will keep doing it to supplement my income for a while. But I think I will. I will always have a sense of humor. And that will always be useful. And I think a sense of humour is useful, especially when things get tense. And it is really useful uh, in a group situation too. I, I have an instinctive ability to be able to lighten the mood a little bit when things get um, tense. So that's a good life skill, I think, that I've picked up through doing comedy, which is better than the other skills you pick up through doing comedy, which is how to stay out late and drink too much. They're not good life skills.
0: Mm. <laughs> It depends what your life goals are.
1: <laughs> That's true. That's true. But, yeah, like a sense of humour and keeping things in perspective will be something that will always be very close to my heart and will always be a part of who I am.
0: Corinne, thank you so much for sharing everything you, that you have today. Um, I ab- appreciate you and and I find you very valuable and, and the things that you've shared, thank you for offering them up to us. Ah. Thanks. You're very nice. Now, when you do arrive on Twitter again, you're at Corinne underscore Grant. I am. Are there any other social accounts you want to own up to?
1: No, that's the only one I've got. Is that is that bad? I'm owning up to the fact
0: that I only have one. <laughs> well, it sounds, given the things that you do, yep. that it's actually a pretty reasonable way of managing your time. Yes. This has been the humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at Corinne underscore Grant is indeed human.